We're not going to go back to the party of Jeb Bush. The question is whether there are going to be more electable versions of Trump, which is why I think the person to fear here would be Glenn Youngkin, who has all the same views, maybe pragmatically, maybe he doesn't deep down, but who really cares? It's what people articulate in public that we measure. Glenn Youngkin has all the same views, but he gives the appearance of being a suburban dad. He's reassuring. That's more the future of the Republican Party post-Trump if Trump loses. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. A number of days ago, Diane Abbott, a long-standing Labour MP in the United Kingdom and the closest ally to Jeremy Corbyn, with whom she once shared a bicycling holiday in still communist East Germany, wrote a letter to The Guardian. Responding to an article from Tomiwa Owolade, one of the earliest contributors to persuasion, she claimed that it is wrong to say that Irish, Jewish or traveler people suffer from racism. It is true that many types of white people with points of difference, such as redheads, can experience prejudice, she claimed, but they are not over life subject to racism. The letter understandably caused a giant controversy in the United Kingdom. Uh, unsurprisingly, Albert did not mention uh, the Holocaust, in which both Jews and Sinti and Roma were murdered very much for racist reasons, because the Nazis thought of them as racially inferior. But it shows a much broader problem with the kind of way in which a huge swath of the progressive left now thinks about race. As Owolade argued in Persuasion, many people have exported the specific terms of the U.S. racial discourse to every other context. When there is significant discrimination, sometimes extreme discrimination against non-Han people in China, some Western media outlets talk about this as a form of white supremacy because they can only think about race in terms of white and black or in terms of white and non-white. And so big swaths of the progressive left think of Jews as privileged because most Jews are in their eyes ethnically white and many have socioeconomically strong standing. This makes it impossible to formulate and to notice the extreme forms of discrimination that such groups experience. Both in Britain and the United States, for example, Jews are per capita the most likely groups to suffer hate crimes. I'm glad that Diane Abbott has had the whip removed from her, that she's no longer sitting as part of the parliamentary labor group in the United Kingdom. But the problem that her comments indicate goes much deeper. My guest today needs little introduction in the world and little introduction on this podcast. Being a repeat offender, it is Ed Luce. Ed is the chief U.S. commentator and columnist for the Financial Times, one of the most insightful and well-connected observers of the Washington scene. We talked about two slightly different things. Most of the conversation was about trying to make sense of where we are at in the long arc of trying to deal with and contain authoritarian populism in the United States. 
is there any hope left where we will turn a corner within a reasonable time frame, or is the kind of deeply divided, more and more polarized, increasingly extreme political scene and political divide in the United States, what we should expect to live through for the next 20, 25, 30 years? That's my opening question to him. And we spend a lot of our conversation trying to puzzle that out. And then the second part of the conversation is about a topic that is equally important, and that is the future of the relationship between the United States and China, the need to contain China's influence in the world and the dangers of trying to do that in a way that will only lead to more confrontation and conflict and potentially war. Ed Luce, welcome back to the podcast. Always a delight, Yasha. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm good, but you know, I've been slightly depressed about one thing and I wanted you to lift me out of my depression or to aggravate it, I suppose, as you choose. You know, during the Trump years, there was a lot of fear about what might happen, but there was also hope, you know, if we beat this guy decisively in 2020, perhaps we'll turn a corner. And after Biden won, I wrote, you know, an essay, which was the lead article on the website when Biden's win was finally confirmed called America Won. It was just somewhat hopeful about the fact that America had managed to do what very few countries have managed to do, what only pretty Brazil has done since, which is to throw out an authoritarian populist from government for free and fair elections after one turn in office. That's a rare occurrence. And that perhaps we would turn that corner. I mean, you know, two and a bit years into the Biden administration, it just doesn't feel like that. You know, the Republican Party is continuing to get more extreme and Trumpism is spreading through the party. Even his rivals are sort of, you know, pretending to be the smarter Trump or the more effective Trump or Trump light, but it's Trump something. And it doesn't look like the Democratic Party is seizing the strategic opening to actually become the dominant political party that's capable of building a you know 60% coalition for all kinds of political and cultural and so on reasons. And so do we ever get out of this? Is this existential mode of combat just what the next 20, 30 years of American politics is going to look like? I wouldn't feel confident enough to go out 20, 30 years, but this sense that it's always the next election, and that's when we'll finally end the fever, as Obama once described the Tea Party which now seem like, you know, very tamed sort of house pets compared to where we are today, is probably a little bit of wishful thinking. A lot of my friends on the more liberal side of the spectrum have an expectation that if it is Trump, then that's the best thing for Biden, because Biden would be beaten by a younger person. But I have to say, although they're probably correct, I feel extremely strong deja vu from similar conversations in 2015 when people were saying, now, if only Hillary could actually get Trump as her opponent, then all will be fine. And of course, we know what happened. And I feel there's a little bit of that complacency visible today. I start with the premise in today's America that presidential elections are 50-50 events. Now, maybe they're 53-47, you know, for a moderate sort of mainstream incumbent like Biden, but they're still too close to feel remotely comfortable and there's a logic to this. I mean, you know, a lot of the Republican extremists that Democrats helped win primaries in the midterm cycle a year ago did go on to lose. But of course, you know, you can play Russian roulette a good number of times before, statistically speaking, the bullet will kill you. And so, you know, no doubt it's true that Biden has a higher chance of winning against Trump than against the Tim Scott. I buy that. That doesn't mean that it is decent politics or that it is reasonable if you're interested in 
the well-being of a society to take that extreme tail end risk. Yeah, and so I guess your question is how long that tail end risk, you know, will go on for, and whether a second Trump defeat and a third in terms of the popular vote would end this cycle in American politics. And I, I say I very much doubt it. We're not going to go back to the party of Jeb Bush. The question is whether there are going to be more electable versions of Trump, which is why I think the person to fear here would be Glenn Youngkin, who has all the same views, maybe pragmatically, maybe he doesn't deep down, but who really cares? It's what people articulate in public that we measure. Glenn Youngkin has all the same views, but he gives the appearance of being a suburban dad. He's reassuring. That's more the future of the Republican Party post-Trump if Trump loses. I think one of the things that I do worry about is a tendency to sort of you know, start with Trump, declare that he's a terrible threat to the institutions of his country, which I believe, and then sort of come up with various reasons why any alternative to him would be just as bad, right? Like, DeSantis is just as authoritarian, but more electable. And and Youngkin strikes me as somebody, I haven't studied him very closely, he strikes me as somebody who might you know, disagree on important policy grounds and have very important divergences to but you wouldn't be a threat to the basic institutions of the American Republic in the kind of way in which Trump clearly is and DeSantis possibly, perhaps probably is. And so, you know, do we get to the point where we're just not willing to accept any Republican candidate as legitimate? What is it about a Yankin that worries you so much beyond his just ability to win and become president? But to me, for I'm unlikely to vote for that candidate, having a Republican candidate who can actually win and who can possibly win a big majority if they are going to moderate the Republican Party, at least on the really, really existential stuff, would be a good outcome because it would allow us to move past this Trumpist moment. I sort of start from the premise that if you do not reject the stolen election theory of January 2021, which Glenn Youngkin doesn't and Ron DeSantis doesn't, then you have already shown yourself capable of challenging sort of the basic norms of democracy. Now, that might be an expedient thing that they would quickly drop or try to make people forget in a post-Trump era. And so, you know, maybe that's too unrealistic benchmark to apply to any Republican with any ambition in today's still Trump party. But I do consider it to be a pretty bad sign of where they're prepared to go. And then if you look at the fact the Supreme Court is going to hear a case that will determine the independent state legislature theory, which would give legislatures the authority unchallenged by local courts to essentially pick alternative slates of electors. And if you look at the more sort of organized beyond Trump, you know, attempts to sort of really manipulate the electoral system, I'm not that confident what Tom Edsel calls minority authoritarianism goes deeper than Trump. I and mean, I think Trump himself is, in some respects, a prisoner of Trumpism. You know, you remember him trying to boast about what should have been his biggest bragging right, the vaccine. The single biggest accomplishment of his administration, not a long list, I admit, but a very significant item. He just stopped talking about it. And there was this amazing moment when I think it was briefly after he had lost office, perhaps it was in you know March 21 or something like that. He was talking to some very conservative audience about the vaccine in positive terms and he was booed. Absolutely. He more than anybody knows how you measure the crowd, how you take the temperature. And he took the temperature and he's not posted about it since. Now, of course, he, like every member of the Murdoch family and Fox News executive and anchor, 
have not just been, you know, double vaxxed, but triple, probably quadruple boosted by now. But it's remarkable that this singular accomplishment, which you can make a plausible argument would have been far more difficult to achieve at that speed in a more lawyer-driven democratic administration, that this single accomplishment has been robbed from him. And there are others where Trump just sort of drops his line. So that would suggest to me the MAGA base is more intuit and more autonomous from Trump than we might credit. So I'm a little bit confused about your overall assessment. In the early part of your remarks, it sounded to me like you were saying, well, perhaps we can actually get to a kind of post-Trump politics. But now it sounds like you think that that's very unlikely. So does that mean that for the next 20 years, we will have two conditions, I guess, an authoritarian threat from the right and an inability of the left or of the Democratic Party to move towards ground where they are able to decisively defeat that. I mean, I think there's two parts to the story. There's the part of the Trump's Republican Party going to the extremes, and there's the part of the Democratic Party being so unappealing to the American electorate that, yes, they have won seven out of the eight last presidential elections in terms of popular vote and so on, but always very, very narrowly. They're just not able to go beyond that majority, but that narrow majority, to the kind of victories which would force the Republican Party you know, back to the negotiating table, which would force the Republican Party to reform itself because that's how politics works. If you're just completely out of office everywhere for a long time, eventually you're going to move. But the Republican Party hasn't needed to. It's a very good question. I mean, if you look at modern-ish American history, where are the points at which there are such deep rebukes from the electorate that the party changes? Well, you think of Hoover's Republicans being defeated by the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Deal coalition in, in 33. 32. You think of Barry Goldwater's defeat in 1964. And you think, I guess, of McGovern and the sort of a whole liberal, anti-war, peacenik, democratic sort of direction being ended by that, leading to Carter and then ultimately Clintonism. Those defeats were massive by American standards. In terms of public opinion, it was 60-40 kind of elections. But in terms of electoral college, we're talking about sweeping the board. I think Goldwater won his home state of Arizona and five deep south states. Dukakis, I think, only a couple of states. I think only Massachusetts, possibly. Yeah, maybe only Massachusetts. So those kinds of defeats do lead to changes, quite big ideological realignments of the defeated party in American history. I just don't see that scale of defeat possible in the next electoral cycle. This society is way too thinly divided, evenly divided. Let me push you on that. I agree that it's very unlikely in 2024, given how the election is shaping out and everything about it. I'm sure we're going to have another closely run election. By the way, I'm in Arizona at the moment at a retreat, and I was at breakfast with our mutual friend Bill Goldson, and he was saying that this is actually now the longest running period of very close electoral competition in American history. But actually, this period is now unique by how many consecutive elections have been that close. So you're right, but these sort of lopsided elections are quite rare, but there have been whole periods when one party predominated in a relatively clear way, and this has not been the case recently. So he thinks that now the fact of how closely we're divided is as significant as the fact of how deeply we're divided, which I thought was an interesting remark. But there's sort of two things we might think about why that has been the case. And one is that there's just fundamental cultural, economic, perhaps demographic forces 
which has split the country on a knife's edge. And that there's these two blocks of people, perhaps with different economic interests, perhaps as many pundits like to say, whites and people of color or something else, that are just opposing each other and nothing is going to move, right? Like no matter who you run, how you run, what you do, you're not going to be able to go beyond those 53% or so if things go well for you. The other theory is that actually there is a huge amount of space of people who are deeply disaffected of both political parties and disaffection of political parties is now as strong as it has been in living memory, that a lot of the population actually is still somewhat moderate on both economic and cultural issues, but that nobody has been effectively able to appeal to them in part because they haven't been able to disown the less appealing parts of their own coalition. I think I'm more tempted by the second scenario. I think it would be perfectly possible for somebody to win perhaps at a 60% majority, 56, 57% and win a whole bunch of electoral state. I think it would be possible. It just doesn't strike me as likely that the broader mechanisms of the primary election and the media landscape and the social media ecosystem give somebody the courage and the vision and the clarity to do that. Well, which do you think it is? Do you think it's the structural factors that make it impossible? Or do you think that the right candidate, the right agency might be able to build that kind of coalition? It's interesting you mentioned Bill Galston, whose numbers I implicitly trust on these things, and many others. And Bill used to be a member of No Labels. And no labels, of course, at least began with the idea that the market is not responding to the voter, that there's something broken in the market price signaling here, that we have the parties getting more extreme, and particularly one of the parties, but neither of them really catering to the middle ground, which is where most Americans are. Broadly speaking, I accept the view, backed up by a lot of data, that Americans are centrist, even center-left on economics. They do want more healthcare. They do want parental leave rights, sick leave rights, and so forth. And they're not too liberal on social issues. They might even be moderately conservative on social issues. Tolerant, but not certainly not radical. Let's put a pin on this. I want to come back to this. My reading is actually that we're pretty center to center left on culture as well. And it depends on where you draw the line. Yeah. It depends where you're sitting, where you define what centre-centre-left is. But broadly speaking, they are not represented either by DeSantis or the people who, you know, used to run the school boards in San Francisco. You know, these people are outliers. But No Labels is a group that Bill Galston, amongst others, has left because it's funded by people like Harlan Crow, the friend of Clarence Thomas. It's funded by libertarians, very rich libertarians, more and more. And you can imagine what the impact would be of a no-labels candidate in the 2024 election. It would be just a, a dream for Trump or DeSantis. So to be more explicit about this for people who may not have followed it, no-labels is a group that has done this kind of bipartisan work for a long time and so on. What's new, I think, for the first time in its history is trying to amount an independent political candidate and seems to have secured, I think, something like 80, $85 million of funding in order to do that. And so the reason why people like Bill Gorston have resigned from the group is that they believe very plausibly, I think, that this is likely to be a spoiler that could help a Donald Trump, that there's no chance the theory goes of this candidate getting to victory, getting to 35, 36% that would need to actually win in a three-party race. There is a pretty high likelihood of him garnering one or 2%. And in 2020, in 2016, in a whole bunch of these kinds of elections, 
that made the difference or would have made the difference. And so therefore, this seems one of the kinds of things that in a closely run election could throw the election to a Donald Trump or another sort of extreme Republican candidate, just as background for people who aren't as much part of this debate. You know, the perennial bait is the American system sort of capable of adapting to mend this broken market transmission mechanism, that there's clearly demand there from what, you know, some people have labeled the exhausted majority who tend to be moderate. There's clearly demand there for uh, politics that reflects better their view than two parties that are not going off on such different tangents. And therefore, I would tend to think some of this is structural. A lot of the cultural, economic conditions that are affecting American politics are also affecting British politics. But there you see in Britain opinion polls showing massive shifts you know, 61, 62%, not that far off, two thirds of British people would like to rejoin the European Union. I think it's a very hypothetical wish at this point, to be honest. But that's a big swing of public opinion, because the parties can reflect that the parties can change. And there are more than two parties now. What is the reason for that difference? I think that's actually really interesting from a kind of comparative perspective, is it that the parties are much more powerful in the United Kingdom? You know, one thing that's striking about Biden is that I think, you know, his age and the kind of lack of charisma and so on that come with that apart, he is the kind of candidate who should be able to win 55, 56% in the United States. But whether for good reasons or out of a lack of courage, when he was elected as leader of the Democratic Party, effectively winning the nomination in 2020, he decided not to say, hey, there's some parts of his party that are deeply unpopular, that I have deep disagreements with, and they're not really part of my coalition. Rather, he decided to become the unity candidate. And he put people from the progressive wing of the party into much more positions of responsibility than they expected. They were very happy with him throughout the 2020 campaign. And it just worked out. Uh, you know, he held the coalition put together, perhaps that was the right strategic call, but it didn't set him up to be a transformative president, in part because he then had all these promises and loyalties in a way that made him incapable of sustaining more than 42, 43% approval in the ratings. In Britain, we had a very interesting figure in the Labour Party, who's interesting for two reasons, Keir Starmer. The first is that, like a Glenn Youngkin, I don't want to compare Trump to Corbyn, I think there's important differences between them, but there is a parallel in how do you take a party that has become extreme back to the mainstream. And you could argue that Keir Starmer, like Glenn Youngkin, did not say all of the bad things about Jeremy Corbyn out loud. He never publicly criticized, so far as I can recall, Corbyn's anti-Semitism while he was in the shadow cabinet, while he was working very, very closely with Corbyn, more closely than Yunkin has allied himself with Trump. But then when he managed to win the election for the leadership of the Labour Party against a more Corbynite candidate, never criticizing Corbyn, saying, I'm talking about the future, not the past, but never criticizing Corbyn, he's been very effective at cleansing the party from more radical elements. He removed the whip from Jeremy Corbyn after renewed denial of the significance of anti-Semitism. And he's just removed the whip from Diane Abbott, Jeremy Corbyn's closest ally, for a bizarre letter in The Guardian in a response to uh, an op-ed piece by Tom Willade, who's an early persuasion contributor, basically saying that you know Jews as well as travelers and Sintin Roma don't experience any form of racism. So he has actually been able to make that transformation very radically. So that's one kind of disjunction. The other disjunction is that by that, he has been able to really ride high in the polls. I mean, his poll numbers have come slightly down and the Tory party under Rishi Sunak has slightly stabilized, but it still looks like the Labour Party is cruising 
but pretty big, significant majority in the next elections. And so what is the reason for that disjuncture? Is it party strength so that the party leader can set the direction and is more competent of doing that? And that then is rewarded by the electorate? Is it that Britain is less deeply divided on cultural or perhaps demographic lines? You know, what is it that has allowed both the swings of public opinion and those acts of political self-writing that we so far haven't seen in the States? And I think there's a lot of things there. I mean, one thing is worth mentioning, Keir Starmer, you've rightly said, is, you know, without directly locking horns with what did Labour so much damage, Jeremy Corbyn's era and the movement sort of left momentum, they were called. He has, just by pragmatism and the art of the possible, which is what all good politicians, you know, are good at, has shifted it to a very different place without sparking a civil war. I think there are very, very big differences between the British and American systems, and there are the weaknesses and strengths in both. But when we're talking about dealing with populism, right-wing populism for the most part, that has afflicted both countries in the last seven or eight years, I think the British system shows more flexibility. The parliamentary form of politics enables leaders to impose on what is a unitary state with, you know, single national parties, much more discipline and much more punishments for people who stray from the party line. You know, I mean, a Kevin McCarthy situation where the speaker has to go through 15 rounds and basically pander to the most extreme people to get past that 15th is inconceivable in the British context. It's not inconceivable, but it's extremely unlikely. Second, I think that Britain's a smaller country and it still has a national media in the form of BBC chiefly that everybody watches. And so it's far more difficult than it is here where things are so balkanized and polarized. It's far more difficult to sustain big lies without being challenged. And it's true that there is still a kind of sense of a mainstream consensus in Britain. There's a kind of sense of, you know, the ordinary person in the street feels like, you know what, Boris has gotten a bit much. Or, you know what, there's something wrong with the establishment, let's give Boris a chance a few years earlier. And and you can feel that sort of shifting, not in 90% of the population, because there's obviously pretty mobilized extremes in Britain as well, but in a good 65% of the population, a kind of common sense response to what's going on that's deeply felt across a vast swath of a country. And America no longer feels like that. It feels much more closely divided. I mean, I'd say it does. Oh, you'd say it does? I'd say it does. It's just that the structural factors prevent it from transmitting to politics. I mean, the number of Americans, and we're just talking about, you know, eggheads in Washington, D.C., and the number of Americans who sort of mentioned to me, wow, Liz Truss was a disaster. And 44 days later, she was gone. You know, and you had a lettuce up, you know, and a lettuce outlived her. The envy expressed being able to just press the eject buttons because the transmission mechanism of poll numbers swinging wildly into your own party having the ability to just get rid of you. I mean, that is obviously something, a flexibility built into the British system that the American system doesn't have. But if Americans did have it, most Americans would have been very happy to press the eject button on Trump at certain stages. There had been a clear way of getting rid of Trump without the extraordinary measure of impeachment. You would probably have had majorities be able to do that. So perhaps part of a screwed upness of America at the moment goes back to the flaws of a semi-presidential system, which political scientists have argued for a long time, sort of particularly vulnerable to a four-time takeover. 
the classic argument made by Juan Linz and others, mostly in Latin American context, is that it becomes so hard to pass anything, which, you know, seems like a good thing against authoritarians, because, of course, if the person in power can't get anything done, it makes it harder for him to concentrate power in his own hands. But paradoxically, it then creates the demand to say, look, nothing is working, we can't get anything done, there's only squabbling. Let's vote for somebody who can push all of that aside, or let's tolerate that somebody uses force to put themselves in that position. That's a classic argument, but perhaps there's a second argument, which is sort of related, that, you know, a really unpopular head of state or one that seems very threatening to institutions in the country can just be voted out by a majority of parliamentarians in different kinds of systems, whereas in semi-presidential systems, there is no mechanism for that, right? I mean, in Britain, you're only prime minister as long as you have a majority in the House of Commons. And when that ceases to be the case, poof, off you go. That clearly is not the case in the United States. And it's not conceivably ever going to be the case. Now, let's be frank, you're not going to get three quarters of states and two thirds of each chamber on Capitol Hill agreeing to a constitutional convention. And if they did, you're not going to get a really constitutional convention in which consensus emerges about how America should be governed. So we are stuck within this very rigid system that isn't representing the American people well. It isn't channeling where the median view is on most issues and gun control, you know, is another that does show flexibility at the local level. I mean, you know, the abortion thing is very, very interesting. But we're stuck with this system. So we have to imagine a way out within this system rather than by analogy to differing ones. But I raised the British example, you know, precisely because I think that generally median opinion is not that radically different in America than it is in Britain. Of course, there's different contexts and different hot button issues. But generally, I don't think most Americans are extremists. Yeah, I strongly agree with that. And so I guess, you know, we're back to the question of whether somebody can manage to start with the base of their political party, because I don't think it's likely to be a third party bid, and then broaden that coalition by emphasizing views that a majority of Americans hold, which as I've been hinting at, I think can be pretty center-left on the economy, but can also be pretty center-left on culture. We can debate exactly what that means, but certainly it feels to me today that if there was once a silent majority, that was reactionary. That's what Nixon sort of built his political campaign on in the 70s. I think there's now a silent majority that is actually pretty tolerant, but certainly doesn't want to go back on things like gay marriage. You know, that may have complicated views about the age at which teenagers should be able to medically transition, but certainly wants to be respectful towards people who are trans and make sure that don't get marginalized and bullied and so on. I think there is actually a majority of a population that on all of those kind of hot button issues takes views that at least are reasonable. Yeah, I just can say I think it's Common Cause that does a lot of very good research on this. And what their findings were about American attitudes on the education system is that overwhelming majority of conservatives said, yeah, we should teach history of America that includes slavery, includes all the bad things that happened. And overwhelming majorities of liberals accepted that there was a complex story in which it wasn't just one of oppression. And basically, it's where, you know, you or I would be, you know, with different nuance, give kids the tools to sort of decide for themselves. That's where clear majorities of both self-identified conservatives and liberals were pretty close to each other. That's not where their ideological leaders are. Yeah, the fascinating thing about that study by Moore and Common is that 
A, a majority of Americans believe both that we need to teach about slavery and Jim Crow and all of the injustices of American history. That's true for Democrats, but it's also true for Republicans. And obviously, we need to teach, you know, that George Washington was a great figure in American history, that the Constitution is a very important document and so on. And that was true of Democrats, not just of Republicans. Uh, But the second interesting finding was that Democrats believed that Republicans don't want to teach anything about slavery. And Republicans believe that Democrats don't want to acknowledge that George Washington was a great man. And so there's sort of both more common ground, actually, for yes and understanding of American history and deep mutual mistrust about the extent to which the other side is part of that broader consensus. I know that you've been thinking a lot for the last week and for the last months about what the world looks like beyond Washington and beyond America. We've talked really interestingly, I think, I've learned a lot from this conversation about what's going on in the United States, but there's big changes happening in the world and in America's role in the world. How do you characterize at this moment the state of geopolitical competition between the United States and China and America's view on how that competition is going to unfold in the next years and decades? It's a very important issue and question, and it's not going to go away. China, unlike the Soviet Union, one can't imagine it dissolving. So this isn't going to end with the sort of implosion of China. China is a nation state, well, will hopefully at some point democratize. Even then, though, I think that the geopolitical butting of heads between the hegemon and the rising challenger is going to be an issue. But I don't expect China to democratize. That's not a likely scenario. So this issue isn't going to go away. To some extent, it is ideological in that China is, of course, a one-party communist state and an autocracy. But to some extent, it's simply structural. It's to do with geopolitics. And what's been very striking about Washington the last few years is the strength of bipartisanship on this issue. You look at the China committee, you look at Mike Gallagher, the Republican chair, Krishnamurti, the minority leader on that committee. There's barely any daylight between them. And it's a pretty hawkish consensus that we're seeing expressed. The absence of what Pollyani would have called a peace faction in Washington is particularly glaring since the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce stopped lobbying for more trade with China. They were essentially a countervailing force because they made so much money from China, because China was such a big contributor to their bottom line. And they're basically now silent, partly because, you know, if you've got business in America and you've got business in China, as Hank Paulson recently told me, the shaded bit of the Venn diagram where you can say something acceptable to both as a business leader is tiny. So better just to keep your mouth shut. And that means that lobby sort of of restraint is gone. And we've got a pragmatic administration that is very much on the Biden administration, very much on the more nuanced side of this hawkish bipartisan consensus. But essentially, as we saw with the balloon incident, the shooting down of the Chinese spy balloon, or what they called a rogue weather balloon, had to respond to Fox News images and shoot it down. It's like an absurd thing to do. And that's derailed any sort of dialogue between the US and China, the response to that. So We're in a very dangerous period with China. And talk of war now is remarkably common, speculation about it. Whether that means we're going to have one or not is quite different. But the ease with which we've slipped into a conversation in which 
great power conflict between China and the US is a normal one, is very striking. So where do the differences lie between what you called the sort of more subtle, more refrained version of a hawkish attitude and the less one? Everybody's sort of hawkish in the bipartisan consensus at the moment, but there are these differences in approach. What are the differences on the menu? What are the points where there is internal disagreement? Yes, so there was a very good speech, a very coherent speech given by Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, last Thursday, in which she made it very clear what was already official policy, but perhaps we haven't really understood it very well, which is the Biden administration does not aim to decouple from China. She said, we do not aim to harm China's development or economic competitiveness. What we do aim to do with these targeted sanctions against high-end semiconductors and anything that contributes to the AI ambitions of Xi Jinping, what we do aim to do is not contribute to China's military development. And that wherever there is a clash between America's national security imperatives and economics, the national security will trounce. But she made it very clear And this speech was really an overture to get dialogue going again. But she made it very clear that our aim is not to decouple and any attempt to decouple would create a global recession, or deeper perhaps than a global recession. We underestimate the degree to which we're all entirely intertwined. That's not the line coming from Mike Gallagher's committee. Mike Gallagher says that China has the explicit aim of creating a techno-authoritarian dictatorship and submitting America to it. He's using lines like, I mean, that's kind of Star Wars, Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker language, that you're not hearing from the administration. There are more hawkish people in the administration and there are more dovish people, but there is a pragmatic real-world debate going on. That's not true from the sort of more hawkish elements of DC as a whole. The direction the Biden administration gets pulled in tends to be more hawkish because there's no countervailing voice. Do you think that this hawkishness is justified, even if perhaps the justified version of it is a more moderate, more sophisticated one? Or do you think there's a case against all of the hawks? No, I think Xi Jinping is a far more authoritarian, autocratic leader than his predecessors, really the most authoritarian since Mao. He has a hundred times the technological capabilities and military reach that Mao ever had, and he has explicitly said he wants to reincorporate Taiwan by force if necessary, whilst he's president. And 2027 is the year with China's military modernization program, where the PLA have been plausibly ordered to be able to have an amphibious assault on Taiwan. So the Hawks are not imagining China's challenge to the international system. My concern is that if we drift further into this situation where the US and China are not talking, China's talking to everybody else, of course. You know, they've had Macron visiting Lula, visiting the Saudi foreign minister, the Iranian foreign minister, the president of the European Commission, the German foreign minister. They have everybody beating a path to their door, but they're not returning Joe Biden's phone calls. And Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is not getting return phone calls from his Chinese military counterparts. We have to get back into a situation of dialogue. Where we are at, I think, and this is again a rather troubling analogy that keeps recurring, is the pre-Cuba missile crisis phase of the US-Soviet relationship. We do not want to go 
through a Cuba missile crisis before we learn modes of coexistence and contact and communication. China is not going to disappear. We need a strategy for dealing with it that doesn't involve continually being on the brink of war, or at least at the risk of fate, of miscommunication, of accident. We have to have some degree of agreeing to peaceful coexistence and some room there to cooperate on the transcendent threats to humanity that only China and the US working together can actually realistically solve. And one of the eerie parallels between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the potential confrontation between China and the West is, of course, that there is a element of a blockade. The Cuban Missile Crisis came to a head when American warships blockaded an attempt by Soviet ships to bring missiles to the island of Cuba. One of the most realistic scenarios, and probably one of the smartest scenarios from the point of view of Beijing, for how the CCP would try to incorporate Taiwan into the area it rules would be to simply blockade Taiwan economically and make it impossible for the island to get energy supplies and foodstuffs and other key things it needs. How should we think about this, Ed? I think you're a more ideologically mellifluous person than I am, but I think broadly we have pretty similar views. How should we think about this as people who believe in the importance and the value of liberal democracy? How do we put together a strategy that contains the influence of China's autocratic system of government that tries to preserve the liberty of people on the island of Taiwan? that takes seriously our obligation to people in Japan and South Korea and other countries in the Pacific to ensure that their thriving democracies don't become more and more dependent on China, you know, perhaps insofar as possible, that minimizes the amount of terrible repression of the CCP internally, especially towards minority groups. How do we accomplish all of that? And can we even do anything to accomplish all of that without, you know, raising the risk of a catastrophic World War III? We've had trouble instituting democracy in small countries where we spent a trillion dollars and occupied like Afghanistan. We should be realistic in what we can aim to influence or achieve within China. And, you know, to some degree, the more tense the standoff becomes and the more sort of armed this piece and tense this becomes, the more likely that is to strengthen the forces of repression and hardliners within China. So I, I think we should be modest about the extent to which we can actually affect internal Chinese political developments. But we for sure should certainly be steadfast in strengthening the terror capabilities of China's neighbors and of you know limiting China's sort of ability through the sort of tech surveillance software that it exports, you know, to do so and providing alternatives. But that involves, you know, building a much more, I think, overt American leadership for an open world digital culture, for leading in terms of the debate about guardrails for artificial intelligence, for being much more engaged economically with the cutting edge new areas of the economy than the Biden administration or apparently nowadays half the Republican Party, obviously the Trumpian half, are prepared to do. We, during the Cold War, had an America that was, to be very crude and caricaturish, a can-do America, very pragmatic. The list of sort of the economic can't-dos of both Democratic administrations and the Trumpian wing of politics is pretty sobering. You can't do trade deals, can't do digital platforms, can't do the WTO. 
can't comply with its rulings, can't reform the Bretton Woods institutions. There's a long list of just won't do. And so I think America's stance here in terms of a potential new Cold War or maybe an actual one with China is a lot less American. It's kind of based on pessimism. First time round Cold War, it was a lot more based on, look, we're prepared to engage, take risks, lead. And so there's a psychological sort of crouch here that I think is part of the American problem. It's not leading in the way it could be. And a lot of America's partners in East Asia, very happy for the military support, but they would like to see other stuff too, mandito for Europe. A final question, you know, just minutes before we pressed record on this conversation, we got a breaking news alert that Fox News and Tucker Carlson are parting ways. Now, I'm putting you in a, an uncomfortable position here because we're recording this on Monday and the episode is going to air on Saturday. So by then we will have much more context and much more knowledge, much more analysis about why this happened and whether this is a one-sided decision by Fox News or whether it was a genuine mutual parting of ways, which tends to be rare in these kinds of situations. But what is your first response? Is that a significant event and what kind of impact might it have in America? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I feel a little bit hesitant until I know why he left. As you say, it looks like he was pushed, but I feel a little bit hesitant because I didn't see him as being more extreme than, say, Sean Hannity, you know, who, at least just at the time we're talking, has not been pushed out. So maybe there was some other event or personal disagreement. You know, I am not going to be in mourning for the next period to see Tucker Carlson leave Fox. I believe it was a diabolical partnership with huge pollutionary effects on the American debate. And I hope that wherever he's going, you know, it's to somewhere with a smaller platform. But, you know, I don't hold out that much hope. This signals a road to Damascus moment by the Murdoch family. Yeah, and one of the sort of interesting questions to me is, to what extent do these media conglomerates actually retain real power to influence? I think 20 or so years ago, it was very plausible to think you know, you go in one direction, you have a pretty captive audience, it's very hard to build alternative platforms. And therefore, you know, you can really decide how millions of people frame and view something. And that will turn out to be very influential. There's a reason why politicians in Britain for many decades have tried to make nice with the Murdoch family, because their assessment quite realistically was that that was the only way to get to power. I guess one question is, is that still the case? I mean, is Tucker Carlson, you know, powerful because of Fox News? Or can he just go and set up camp with his own YouTube presence and podcast company? And even for his views have been pushed out of Fox News, he simply replaces that. And rather than this making Tucker Carlson less powerful, perhaps it makes Fox News less powerful. I don't know what the answer to that is. Clearly, Joe Rogan has a larger audience than MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News combined, perhaps not total audience, but certainly his episodes gain many, many more listeners than those three channels have combined in prime time on a normal day. But perhaps he's not able to build that kind of platform without the support of Fox News. But that's one of the questions that I have in the back of my mind and not really sure which way it goes, I guess. I guess you'll pick up the phone and call Piers Morgan, who's trying to do the same too, having been sort of ejected from a mainstream network. You know, remember, Dominion case brought out the fact that Fox is a bit like Trump on vaccines. You know, it wanted to sort of report the facts, but then it sort of, it got pushed by its audience not to. So there is something bigger out there that is very powerful, and the leaders are following the followers. 
Well, hopefully at some point we will have more enlightened leaders leading us towards greener pastures. Until then, Ed will have to have his regular chat on the podcast to uh, make sense, try to make sense of the world and, and at least console each other. I know that you've consoled me a little bit of only through the pleasure of conversation. Likewise. Uh, always a pleasure, Yasha. Thank you, Ed. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.